chapter 9. So Hebrews chapter 9. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 10. Uh, last week we had looked at uh, chapter 8 verses 7 through 13. And we looked at the promises that came with the new covenant. Uh, obedience that, that flowed from a, a heart that had been renewed, that had been changed. A relationship with God is a promise of the new covenant. Unity in a covenant community. And then we saw the eternal forgiveness of sins. And we were told that the first covenant, and remember just as a review, is, is, is a simple way to think of the first covenant, the old covenant, is you, you can think of the Old Testament. And you can think of the New Testament. But we were told that the first covenant, that the old covenant, had faults. And we saw that in chapter 8, verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them. So we see that there were these faults that were mentioned in the old covenant. And this morning we begin to see them as worship in the Old Covenant is described. And it's described in two different ways in a description of the place where worship took place. And then the second way is in the prescription for worship and how the prescription of the worship was supposed to take place. We begin to see emerging from the text why there were faults in that first covenant. And as we see those faults, what ends up happening is that it's not that the Old Covenant is is that we look at it as if it was a negative thing, but rather it serves the purpose of pointing towards something that was greater. So what we see in seeing those faults is the better promises emerge through seeing those. Really, they shine from the text. And so as we approach this section of Scripture this morning, is it deals primarily with Old Testament worship. It deals with the tabernacle. It deals with what took place in the tabernacle, what the priest would do on a daily basis and what the priest would do on a yearly basis as we read these things, which are oftentimes unfamiliar for, to us. Uh, they're hard to follow. Let us actually be reminded that what we see through these things is that we see what we have in Christ. We see how the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And we learn through this process how to properly read our Bible. How does the Old Testament or how does the Old Covenant relate to the New Testament and to the New Covenant? But today for worship, when we read of all of those laws that took place in worship in the Old Testament, what laws and regulations do we keep today or do we keep them? Which ones have been abolished, and which ones remain. So let us hear the word of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second session section called the Most Holy Place. 
having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priest go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation." This is the Word of God, and may He bless the reading of it. You'll notice that in the first five verses, it deals primarily with the place of worship, which would have been the tabernacle. And then the tabernacle itself was divided into two sections, the holy place and then the most holy place, or sometimes referred to as the holy of holies. And it's referring to what was in there, that there would have been lampstands, there would have been an altar, a table, a and there would have been all of these various things that were inside there that are described. And then in verses 6 through 10, you, do, you see the, the description of what the priests did with those things. And so you see the place of worship, and you see the prescription of worship. And as we read through those things, I, I noted what seemed to be 11, at least 11 obvious faults. There might be more. But without getting too deep, because the text even tells us, let's not go into these in super big detail because it misses the point. We see 11 things that come out of this, and that doesn't mean this is a, there's 11 points, but rather we're going to see two primary points out of this. But the first is this, is the fact that the tabernacle, you'll notice it says in verse 1 that it was an earthly place, and this is all contrasted to heavenly The priest would go into an earthly tent, whereas Christ has gone into heaven, where he conducts his ministry. And so we see that the first fault that emerges in this is that earthly in contrast to the heavenly. But notice how it begins. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. Now, I want you to note on this is that there were regulations for worship in the Old Testament. They had to worship God in a specific way. The word regulation means precept, it means statutes, it means requirements. It's translated in the book of Romans as a decree. It's speaking of a way in which, or a law that God has prescribed in worshiping Him. The King James Version translates it this as the ordinance of divine service. And so when we see that the Old Covenant had a specific way of worship, it meant that God Himself prescribed how God Himself would be to worship, would be worshipped. Now, what we have to understand is when you go back and you read the Old Testament, 
You see laws all over the place. You see laws for worshiping God. You see laws for keeping festivals, for keeping days and doing certain things. You see priests having to wear and dress a certain way. Those are specific laws that we would call ceremonial laws. You see also a moral law in the Old Testament. That would be the Ten Commandments. That's a moral law that's abiding. It's still binding on the conscience of us today. And then you would see laws that would be judicial laws. How do we enforce the Ten Commandments? So you see three types of laws in the Old Testament. And when you read this text here, and it says that the first covenant had regulations for worship, what it's speaking of are those ceremonial laws. It's speaking of those laws that were specifically for worship. Now you'll notice the word had indicates that it's past tense. We no longer practice those ordinances, those divine ordinances. We no longer practice those regulations of worship. But that does indicate a few things for us. The mention of the first covenant regulations with the word even. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship means this is that there are regulations for new covenant worship. And they're not the same as old covenant worship. I think that that is one of the travesties of the modern church today, is that there is no attention given to the fact that Scripture tells us in the old covenant and in the new covenant how we are to approach God. That we are to actually worship Him, not according to our own imaginations and how we think we ought to worship God, but according to His Word. You look at the Old Testament, what happened when they approached God in an unworthy manner? Well, God would strike them down. You think today, there's no way that would happen. We'll say that to Ananias and Sapphira. Say that to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he talks about approaching the Lord's table, which is part of new covenant worship, in an unworthy manner. He says, that is why many of you are sick, weak, and even have died. So, is there a prescription to New Testament worship? Yeah, what is to be in a worship service specifically? Because when it speaks of regulations for worship, it's speaking of their gathering for worship service. What what does the New Testament prescribe for a worship service in the New Covenant? Well, preaching, prayer, the ordinances, reading of Scripture, and singing. That's it. There's nothing else added to it. So we best not add anything to it as well. But we keep our worship services simple according to the new covenant of preaching the word, reading the word, singing the word, praying the word, seeing the word, the gospel proclaimed in the Lord's table, the gospel shown in Baptism. Those are the regulations of worship. 
There's a freedom of worship that we have and that we're allowed to have when we are under the freedom of God's Word directing us. We're not free to do whatever we like in worship, nor were they in the Old Covenant. We are free to do what God commands us. But this also means something else, is if we were to apply Old Covenant worship regulations today and count that as being worshipful, we would actually be practicing unlawful worship. That may seem rather obvious, but it's not for all. So how do we understand the Old Covenant and that ceremonial worship? Well, that was pointing us to the realities of what we have in Christ. And that Old Covenant worship was, it says, of an earthly place of holiness. And while we are now here confined to earth, obviously, The earth, as it says in verse 1, it says an earthly place, takes on somewhat of a negative connotation. It carries the idea of something that's not lasting. Actually, it carries the idea in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a picture of something else. In fact, when you read of God instructing Moses on the tabernacle, God showed Moses from heaven what the tabernacle was supposed to look like. So the earthly was to model something in heaven, but yet it itself was not what it was modeling. My daughter has this pink Cadillac model car. And it's sitting on our bookshelf. And it models what a pink Cadillac would look like. But it ain't a pink Cadillac. It's a model of it. It's not the real thing. It points to the real thing. And when we see it, we see a resemblance of the real thing. But we know it's not the real thing. And that's what the tabernacle was pointing to. It itself was not the heavenly abode of God. It was an earthly place of worship. The tabernacle was meant to represent the heavenly. It was designed to imagine heaven, but it itself was not heaven. You notice in verse 2, for a tent or tabernacle was prepared. And it begins to describe this in terms of its sections within the tent. So you have a tent that's separated by inner tents, if you will. It says, For a tent was prepared, the first section, this is describing the holy place, as it's called, had a lampstand, it had the table, it had the bread of presence, and this is called a holy place. And itself was not holy, But it was supposed to represent holiness, and it would become holy when God's presence came. But what's interesting in the the description of the tabernacle, you have a holy place, you would have an outer court. When it became the, the temple, it would be the court of the Gentiles, there would be a sign that says, if you're a Gentile and you come past this, you'll you'll be you'll be executed on the spot. 
And then you would come in and you would have the holy place and then there would be a veil that separated the most holy place. And what you see is from that outer court, working your way inward is degrees and layers of holiness. You think about the construction of the temple. It had bronze on the outside. What was on the inner side? Gold. Degrees of holiness. You think about the camp in Leviticus and how the camp of Israel was to be gathered around the tent itself. You had degrees of holiness. The tribe of Levi was the direct tribe surrounding the tabernacle and the other tribes were spread out from there. You have degrees of holiness. Even in how the veils were used and made themselves indicated degrees of holiness, layers of holiness. And it was all to communicate this one simple thing in Old Covenant worship, the seriousness of God and that you cannot just approach Him carelessly. You cannot approach Him even boldly. But the thing that made it holy was God Himself. Gold is just gold. It's going to be our, our, our sidewalks and our, our streets when we go to heaven. Bronze is just bronze. It has no intrinsic value in and of itself. Only God has intrinsic value. Only God has infinite value. And so what made the tabernacle holy was not all of these things that they did. They were to point to holiness. They were to show to holiness. It was to show that God is serious. God is pure. God is holy. And you're not free to just walk up to Him. You see, and that there was a a lampstand that was made of gold, and it had six branches and coming out of the main stem, and each branch had like a, a little lamp holder that was shaped in like a flower. And it was to provide light. But what was the problem with the lampstand? What's the problem with your candles that you have in your home that you burn for scent? They don't last forever. You see the problem with that. You see a table and a bread of presence, and the table, it was made of acacia wood, and it was covered with gold, and it had various utensils that went with it for serving, and the bread consisted of these 12 cakes made of flour and was freshly placed on the table every single Sabbath. But only the priest could eat of the bread. And every time uh, they, they ate of it and they replaced it, they replaced it every single Sabbath. What's the problem with the bread? What's the problem with your bread if you don't eat it by a certain date? You think of the words of Christ. Those who eat of my flesh. And drink of my blood. They needed to be replaced. They would grow moldy. 
In verse 3, it begins to describe the most holy place. It says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And so the most holy place is separated by this curtain that was embroidered and specially made. And every detail of the tabernacle was shown to Moses by God when he was on Mount Sinai. And everything had to be made exactly the way it was. And the, the builders of it, Bezalel was the main builder of these things. He was gifted by God with the Holy Spirit to craft them a certain way. There's these two curtains that separate each thing. What's the problem with a curtain? What's the problem with a veil that separates God from the people. And not just the people, it separates God from everyone except for one person. When you look at that old covenant worship, the people were separated from God. They could not experience the presence of God. Verse 4 begins to describe what's in the holy place. It says, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Now the golden altar of incense, if you actually go back in the Old Testament and read on that, it was not actually in the most holy place, but it was connected to the most holy place because what happened is they had to light it on the Day of Atonement. And let me tell you why they had to light it on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus tells us about this. It says this, And put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. Why did they want smoke to cover the mercy seat and smoke to cover the ark? Here's the reason. So that he, that's the high priest, does not die. The incense was lit to protect the priest from the direct presence of God. In fact, they could not even see because the room and the most holy place would be filled with the incense of the smoke. And if they did not do that, the text of Scripture says that they would die. They were not able to just simply approach God. They could not just experience the presence of God. And you see in there this mysterious object, and it's become mysterious and a bit of fascination because it's nowhere to be found, the Ark of the Covenant It's become something of folklore. You think of the Indiana Jones movies where they're trying to find it. It's something that captures our imagination, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what was the Ark of the Covenant? It was just simply a box covered with gold. It had to be carried a certain way. And if it wasn't held a certain way, the people would be killed. You think of Uzzah when when they're carrying the Ark into Jerusalem on a cart, which they weren't supposed to carry it on a cart. They were supposed to carry it with poles and not touch it. And when the the cart slipped, Uzzah stuck out his hand to keep the ark from falling to the ground. And what happens to him? 
God strikes him dead there. So the Ark of the Covenant, it was oftentimes used in Israel's history as they would take it to battle. Their problem was they began to use it as a, like a, a lucky rabbit's foot, as if we take this out, we'll win our battles. But it was a golden urn that held the manna, and the manna was a reminder that God had provided and cared for his people in the wilderness. It contained Aaron's staff that budded, and that was the signification that Aaron had been chosen. Aaron had been elected by God to be the high priest and that his children would be the high priest. Now, by the time you get to the building of the temple, those things aren't in the ark. The man is no longer in the ark. Aaron's rod is no longer in the ark. No no idea where it went. 1 Kings 8-9 says in the building of, of the temple that those things were not in the ark anymore. Just the ta- tablets of the covenant. And the tablets of the covenant, they represented the main covenant stipulations, your ten commandments, your ten words, the Decalogue. But you see there in the fact that those things were contained there and showing forth to something just, just one real simple point is this, is that they had to carry the Ten Commandments to be reminded of them. That was part of the Old Covenant, and they could never keep it. What's the difference? The New Covenant, those Ten Commandments are written on our hearts that are new hearts that desire to keep and to follow, and to love the law of God. They're no longer contained in an ark. They're contained in the ark of a heart. Then you see, you see on the ark itself, the mercy seat in verse 5. It says, Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The mercy seat was referred to as the throne of God, where God's presence would manifest itself in a tangible way, where God would meet with the high priest. And you see these angels that are guarding it. What's the imagery of the tabernacle itself in that with the cherubim on the ark guarding it? Well, to understand the imagery there, you have to go back to Genesis. Adam enjoyed unreserved fellowship and the presence of God all the time. But when he sinned, He was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And what was placed there to guard the entrance of Eden? Cherubim. With a flaming sword. Meaning the presence of God was restricted. And it's not until His Son goes under the sword of the cherubim to open the presence of God to His people again. But that is the imagery that is there of the mercy seat. But not only this, is that to be able to experience this, that the mercy seat itself, and just to show that it itself was not holy in and of itself, 
In Leviticus 16, again, you don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you. It tells us that in itself, this, this mercy seat and this ark that is supposed to be where the presence of God is, that, again, it was a box. They had to follow certain things, and if they didn't follow these things, God would not meet them. Now, that doesn't mean that they could just twist God's hand. It just means that God said, you must do these things. In chapter 16 and verse 14 of Leviticus, it says, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat. On the east side in the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So before the R, before they would even experience the presence of God, they had to sanctify it. The blood as they're sprinkling it with their finger on there. And you can just... Get the visualization of that. They're consecrating it. It's being set aside as holy. It itself had to be cleansed. Notice all of these things that you had to do to experience worship, for God to dwell with them. Now, he says this. He says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So, basically what he's saying, let's not get distracted with the details of these things. Hebrews is written to Hebrews. They would have been very familiar with these. We're not, so it's helpful for us to have a little bit of context on them. But it is to say this, is that we shouldn't get distracted by those things because those things were shadows. Those things were types of what was to come. They're not to be a distraction to us. Now, as you read this, it could be possible that you think that, you know, that's actually a wonderful way to worship God. Maybe you're not thinking that, but just go with me for a second on this. You mean if I just go to the high priest and take my sacrifice and I, he goes through and sprinkles these things on the Ark of the Covenant, we'll experience God's presence and God's blessings in this land and we'll experience all of these things. Doesn't sound too bad. I mean, if I do these things, I get this. That's what the Hebrews were tempted to think. That if we just go back to doing these things, we'll experience, once again, God's blessings. If we go back to doing these things, we'll we'll experience God's presence with us, and we won't be experiencing these hard times and these troubles that we find ourselves in right now. There's a temptation for them to look back on those things and think, actually, there's a little bit of comfort in that. But what have we seen with the text? It actually accomplished nothing. No one has ever been saved by presenting sacrifices in the Old Testament. No one was forgiven of their sins for something that they did in the Old Testament. No one has been forgiven of sins for what they contributed to it. 
It is by faith that any Old Testament saint was counted righteous. As he looked at the sacrifices and in obedience followed them, the Old Testament saint would have known these point to something greater, but they themselves are not the thing. We have that which is greater. We have already accomplished that which is the better promise. We have Christ. Now it goes into the prescription of worship beginning in verse 6. And you'll notice right off the bat that you see an issue. These preparations having thus been made, that is the, the tabernacle and the building of it and all of the things in it, the priests go regularly into the first, six, first section performing their ritual duties. And I just want you to hang on that word regularly and ritual. And that is this, is that they had to continually do these different things. They had weekly duties that they had to do. On the Sabbath, they had to attend the lamp. On They had to make sure that incense was burned daily. They had other lamps that were daily. They had sacrifices morning and evening. And the entire point of that that the text is making us is that they were constant. These were constantly performed actions. They never actually brought about a complete forgiveness of sins. What would happen if you went through these things and on the Day of Atonement, but then you sinned after the Day of Atonement? How would your conscience feel? In fact, we begin to see this emerge with the high priest in verse 7. It says, but into the second, that's the most holy place, the holy of holies, only the high priest goes. Only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of his people. So what's the problem with that? For us, only the high priest experiences God's presence versus all the people of God experiencing God's presence in the new covenant. And this would happen only once a year. Again, on that day of atonement, I would encourage you, go home after service and read Leviticus 16. That is the day of atonement. They would go into this, the Holy of Holies, one day out of the year, only one man, and that one man was chosen because of birth, that he would go in there. And he himself would have to notice what it says. He offers for himself a sacrifice meaning the priest himself that is supposed to stand on behalf of the people is what? A sinner representing sinful people. It's really the blind leading the blind in many ways. But it does mean this, is that the requirement for a blood sacrifice means that the high priest cannot enter boldly into the presence of God. Why do I keep mentioning that? 
that the high priest and the people could not approach God boldly because we're told actually in the New Covenant we can approach God boldly. That doesn't mean pridefully. That doesn't mean arrogantly. It means that with confidence is what that means. We can approach God. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we're called to approach God with confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The whole point is the high priest himself, who is supposed to be the most holy, he could not do this himself because he could not approach God. And it says that he had to do offer for the unintentional sins of the people. Well, what is an un- unintentional sin? Because in some sense, every sin is intentional. Well, Scripture makes a difference between intentional and unintentional. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 30, it describes this, but the person who does anything with a high hand whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Now this is speaking of unintentional sins versus sins of a high hand. Why does the author of Hebrews bring up this unintentional sins versus just sins in general? We have to look at the context of Hebrews. The context of Hebrews is dealing with these warning passages, these warning passages of apostasy, these warning passages that are is a warning to those that would proclaim Christ falsely but not truly know Christ and to walk away are committing sins of a high hand. To proclaim Christ and then to apostatize to walk away from Christ, there is no remission of sins. That's the continual warning of Hebrews. If you desert Christ, you didn't know Him. That's why it speaks of these unintentional sins, is to bring to our own memory those warnings that are here. You see, this continues and showing us how they would worship, but that the Holy Spirit is actually teaching us these things. Look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. You know, that's a remarkable verse there, because when you think about the writing of Scripture, we say that the Scriptures, say Hebrews, I believe it was written by Paul, But really, when we get down to it, Hebrews was written by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit made this very clear. And the Holy Spirit makes this very clear to us today as well. So what does the Holy Spirit teach us about these things? As long as you hold to the Old Covenant, you have no access to God. And this should be plain for those with ears to hear. The Holy Spirit indicates it, which means 
The Holy Spirit makes this known. The Holy Spirit has made it plain to us. The Holy Spirit reveals to those in the New Covenant that the typology and the temporary character of the Old Covenant, its ceremonies, its regulations, its celebration of feasts and days, they were pointing to something, but they are not the something. And thus they are done away with. Scripture has types and the antitypes. The types point to the antitype, and when the antitype arrives, the type is done. Put it simply, A.W. Pink says this, the toys of the nursery become obsolete when manhood is reached. I don't play with the toys in the nursery. I don't play with the cars in the nursery. I have a real car. There's a, there's a, a maturity that takes place. The old covenant pointed to the new covenant. We don't play with the old covenant because the new covenant's here. It's the real thing. These were, it says, symbolic for the present age. Now that word symbolic is actually the the Greek word for parable. These things were a figure pointing to a greater truth. And this really comes down to this. As you think about it and you look at the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, we have to ask this question, how is a person justified before God? Is it through these old forms and these old things? And if so... We see that those were just symbolic. Those were just parables. How is one justified before God? And here's the problem with it. The text tells us very clearly, these things, according to this arrangement, gifts, sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What is our conscience? One pastor in his collection of sermons on Hebrews defines the conscience this way. He says it's our moral awareness of the judgment of God that brings about a sense of guilt, the recognition that we have done wrong, that we are answerable to God. That's the conscience. Following and doing certain things doesn't ever alleviate our conscience. A perfection of the conscience is only possible with the forgiveness of sins. And it's an acknowledgement that you know that you have been forgiven of sins. And now to contradict my previous hypothetical conversation that could be going on in your head right now, you might think, I have no temptation to return to the Old Covenant. That sounds crazy. Why would we do that? Let me put it to you like this then. Do you ever rely on your own faith as the means of your salvation and assurance? Do you ever rely on your own ability to love Christ as a point of comfort for you? Do you ever rely or place your faith in your faith rather than the object of our faith? If you you do that, you've just entered into the Old Covenant. We don't place our faith in our faith. Our faith is in Christ. Our faith is the empty hand that brings nothing to the table. 
When we begin to wonder if we're forgiven, we don't look at what we have done and how good we have been. We look to Christ who says, you are forgiven. That's our assurance. As long as we measure our salvation according to what we do or how well we do it or how often we do it, we'll be stuck with a guilty conscience. But what we see in the New Covenant is that we have been perfected. It says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ has accomplished this. Why is that? Verse 10 tells us, but these things, they, they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Just hold on that for a second. Regulations, it's the same word that we saw in verse 1, which is speaking of law. Law containing uh, on what? Food, drink, various washings. In other words, there was a law about food, drink, washing. When did those cease? What does the text say? Until the time of Reformation. Meaning those laws are no longer applicable in this present day. Not applicable in this age. We have a heavenly Holy place. We have the completed work of Christ. All believers have continual access to the Lord and experience His constant and abiding presence. We have a forgiveness of sins. And this comes at the time of Reformation. It's interesting. It describes food and drinks and various washings, which is describing all of these outward things, but the new covenant deals with the inward person with the heart. That's what the old covenant dealt with. Things you could see, things that you could experience and and touch, but it never dealt with the heart. Only does the new covenant deal with the heart. So how do I have a clear conscience? In our day and age, we try to get a clear conscience by justifying sin, renaming sin, anything to get away from sin. We might try to justify or try to have a clear conscience by doing certain religious things. If I go to church enough times, if I say enough prayers enough times, if I read my Bible enough times, I'll have a clear conscience. How do we have a clear conscience before God? How do I have a relationship with God? The text tells us it's only by the true tabernacle, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the lampstand, who said, I am the light of the world, who was the bread of presence, who said, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, who was the true high priest, not of the line of Aaron, but of Melchizedek, the one who tore the veil from top to bottom, that we may have access to the Holy of Holies and enter the presence of God boldly with confidence. Not by our righteousness, not by something we do, 
but by Christ and Christ alone. And how do I have this relationship? Do I have this relationship by doing things, performing things, saying things, by walking an aisle? No, we have it by grace through faith alone. We come with our empty hand, our empty hand of faith, and we cling to Christ. And if you've come to Christ, that means that Christ has called you and if Christ has called you, you're, you don't have to worry about holding on to Him. He will hold you and never let you go. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your great mercy, Your great kindness to us shown to us in the Gospel. We thank You how we can look back on Your old... Covenant people and how they worshiped and how these things pointed forward to the realities that we now experience in Christ. We may experience your presence even as we partake in communion where Christ promises his presence with his people. We praise you that these things, these shadows pointed to the reality and that we have them now. They are ours in Christ. Father, I pray that if there's anyone that may not know Jesus, that you would call them now, and that they would call upon the name of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.